a couple of weeks ago when we began our series looking at the gospels of Jesus recording or the miracles of Jesus recording the gospels I made the point that there were two primary reasons that those exist one was to reveal something about the nature of who Christ is and the other was to in some way validate his claims and as we think back on the two miracles that we've examined so far I think we see them speaking to to both of those If you consider, for example, the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine. He made something with history, because wine requires aging. But He did it in an instant. And we talked about how that reminds us of what took place at the day of creation, when there also God made something new with time built into it. We thought back at the day that He made the fruit trees, it says they were bearing fruit. The day He made the birds, it says that they were flying above the earth. The day that He made man, He was man. And woman was woman. So when Jesus did what He did at that wedding in Cana, He revealed an aspect of His nature attributed to God alone. That nature now seen, lived out in the life of Christ. And then we came to that next miracle, the the miracle of the royal official son. And when we entered into that discussion, we realized that there had been a gap of time between those two miracles and some important events that had taken place, specifically some very clear professions of faith. We talked about John the Baptist who said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. We talked about how the disciples recognized Jesus as the Messiah. They went and told one another, we have found the Messiah. The one whom Moses and the law and the prophets spoke of. We looked at that episode in in Scripture as John records it when Jesus cleared out the temple and called it my father's house. And we looked at his time with Nicodemus, where he explained that he did not come to to judge the world, but to bring salvation to the world. And then that encounter with the Samaritan woman, who clearly understood what Jesus was saying, because her testimony of faith was, this is indeed the Savior of the world. All these claims were being made, and so when we get to the event of the royal official, we see what Jesus does in that miracle validates that all these things that all these people were saying are in fact true. Remember, the royal official came to Jesus wanting to to make a deal. His heart was truly not at that time seeking after God as much as it was looking for just the, the benefits of his power. And Jesus knew his heart. And if he had come to to judge the world, then that man would have been rejected for his unbelief. But Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And it was his desire to expose his heart, to bring him to a place of faith. Jesus wanted him to believe in who he was. And not just... And what he could do. He and all his household, as we learn, came to put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Messiah. So that by the time we get to now this third miracle in John's gospel, things begin to dramatically change. The miracles are, in fact, accomplishing 
their purpose. They're drawing attention to the person of Christ. And people are asking, who is this man who does these things? For the religious leaders, it kind of began with a, a curious interest. And, and then it moved into a, a reluctant reservation. And after this miracle, we see that it turns into a deadly opposition. The identity of Jesus becomes explicitly clear. And so to t- some, as we've seen, he is in fact the Savior. But to others, he's a threat to their security. But to both, to both, Jesus asks the same question. Do you want to be healed? When he goes to the man in our passage this morning, that's the question he asks. And I believe by implication, as we read this passage together, it's the question he asks us. Do you want to be healed? So we're going to look at that together this morning. And before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you just asking that uh, as we see your word, we see it clearly through your eyes, by the work of your Spirit in our hearts, that you will uh, pull back the veil of the things that distract us and, and, and turn us away, but help us to see clearly your heart for your people in the life of Jesus Christ. May we see the message of the miracle that is intended um, as is recorded by John. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to John chapter 5. Verse 1, John chapter 5, verse 1. Really, we pick up right where we left off last week. Although there is an episode of time that has taken place in between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. But look at John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever was first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in and was made well by whatever disease which he was afflicted. Now, quite an amazing scene, isn't it, as you think about it? pretty helpless situation is being described here as these people surround this pool of water. We know that Jesus is back in Jerusalem. It says a feast of the Jews. We don't know specifically which feast it is. It's not clear, but it's not important. What's important is that it is a feast where all the people have gathered into Jerusalem for an important event. What we are given details about is to where Jesus goes specifically. And in your mind's eye, if you can kind of Picture uh, Jerusalem with these walls that surround it. Up in the northeast corner is a place where this pool is located. Once you enter into the main wall of protection that was built by Nehemiah, and then you go inside and kind of take a right, there's a sheep gate. And that's literally what it was for, is for the animals who were being brought up for sacrifice to be held in this large open area awaiting for the sacrifice to be made. And in this large area, there were five porticos, coverings um, for those animals so that they could have water and shelter while they were there. They were protected from the outside area and held inside the walls of Jerusalem. 
was intended for the animals. <laughs> but our passage describes a multitude of people who were there as well. And the description of their condition is pretty graphic, isn't it? And a little bit depressing if you think about it. They talked about how they were laying down. No one was up walking around is the point. They were all there waiting for something. I think they were laying down because likely they were unable to move. It describes them as sick, blind, lame, withered. That word sick is a Greek word, astheneho, which literally means without strength. I think it's what it's telling us is they were unable to move. Some were blind and others were were lame and withered, it says. I believe that's describing those who were paralyzed. And so they couldn't move. Their their limbs had had shrunken with atrophy. Their, their, Their joints had contracted for having been paralyzed over time. This is a community of invalids who were confined to the space where someone had placed them. What a sad scene. And what they were hoping for, in my mind, was even more disheartening. As you look at the end of verse 3 and through chapter 4, it's an interesting explanation of what's going on here. There's a number of opinions as to to what this is intended to communicate. Some look at this as a a later addition to the manuscripts that helps answer the answer given to uh, by the paralytic in in verse 7. Others see that it is an angel of the Lord that literally came down and stirred these waters as it's described. Let me explain to you why I see the stirring of the water as more of a, of a myth for these people than it was a reality. Here's why. First of all, these people are described in very deliberate ways. And I believe their description indicates that they were those who would not be able to really know if this was ever true. I mean, just think about it. There they were those who were blind. How do they know when the waters are being stirred? can't see it it describes those who were lame and withered they they couldn't move they can't get there also we know that by description they're in a desperate need and the more desperate the need is the more willing we are to to believe the unbelievable that's true for all of us in some degrees for example i no, a lot of us have struggled with upper rep- respiratory infections this last year. For some reason, it seemed worse than other years. I had my first episode back in October. And I remember going to the doctor, getting my round of antibiotics, and began to feel better. But I had relapse after relapse after relapse. And it was so discouraging. And, and the medicine wasn't working. And so I had all kinds of people saying, hey, have you, my mom, great with stuff like this, hey, have you tried aloe vera? No, but okay, I'll try it. Linda makes this special spice tea. It has some magic formula. I don't know what it is, but it's supposed to make you feel better. I had a cup every single morning. My point is, is that the desperate times call for desperate measures. And when I couldn't get well, I was willing to try anything. And I believe that's a situation that these people are in as well. What we do know from history is that these pools were spring-fed. And so it likely had a natural phenomenon that caused these waters to bubble. I think that the healing was legendary because I don't know that anybody ever saw that it was in fact true. And I think perhaps the best support of this 
is that what's being described here is just simply not consistent with the character of God. To give blessing based on the survival of the fittest. God's grace has never been anything earned by merit. Being first in the pool is just not consistent with how God works. The fact that Jesus approaches, as we will see, the one least likely to have ever reached that water is evidence of that fact. But regardless of how you understand the stirring of the water, it does not change the desperate need in this man's life. And please don't miss the fact that that's the point. Okay? Let's see what happens in verse 5. And a certain man who was there, who has been who had been 38 years in his sickness, 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him, Who was cured saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Thirty-eight years is a long time to live with unfulfilled hope, isn't it? I would assume that there were others who gave up a long time ago on that same kind of situation. Jesus approaches this man already knowing everything about him. Just like when he approached the Samaritan woman, knowing all about her. Just like he knew all about Nathaniel, he he knows all about this man. And, And he asks an interesting question, doesn't he? Here's this man, lame and withered for 38 years, and he asks him, do you want to get well? Doesn't that have an obvious answer, right? Why would he ask a question like that? May... Maybe he was trying to help us understand something about this man's heart. Because look in verse 7. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the water when the water is stirred up. But but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Although there might have been an obvious answer, the man, in fact, didn't say, Yes, I want to be healed. Instead, he gave an explanation, a defense as to why his system that he was dependent on wasn't working. He wasn't expecting Jesus to heal him. He was only hoping that he would be the one to help him get in the pool. You see, he's trying to make his system work, regardless of how long it has consistently failed him. His physical condition is a tragedy. But I believe the hopelessness of his faith is what makes this gut-wrenching. But even in the absence of his faith, 
Jesus heals him. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. Okay, now, as best as you can, think about the magnitude of what just took place. Think about the magnitude of what just took place. 38 years paralyzed. If you've seen folks in a paralyzed position, you know how their muscles atrophy. They get small. They're, it says that they were withered and lame just because it, they lose that muscle tone. Their joints contract because they're not moving. They're staying in that same position over long periods of time. They lose all strength and endurance. But in a word, he gets up and walks. And not only that, he carries his pallet. Now, when I was thinking about this, it brought back to my mind my experiences uh, as a physical therapist. I remember specifically during one of my internships being at Baylor Rehab in Dallas, where we would treat a lot of patients that had strokes or were recovering some from a spinal cord injury. And those of my physical therapy friends in the audience know that, that that's a slow process. <laughs> and I remember there would be days where we would work with somebody who had been through one of those accidents We would help them stand up. They would take one, maybe two steps, and that was all they had. They were done for the day. This man gets up, walks, and carries his pallet. It's an amazing miracle. (laughs) What's more amazing, though, is what happens when he runs into what I call the religious police, (laughs) the Pharisees. You know, I I don't know what they said to him. We have the account here, but it's as if they looked at him and said, Hey, guy with the withered legs who hasn't walked for 38 years, why are you carrying your mat? It's the Sabbath. Don't you know anything? That's almost more unbelievable than the miracle itself. No questions about how did this happen? My question is, do they care? Apparently not. Look at verse 10. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. (laughs) They were too blinded by the law to see the miracle of God's grace. Mm. The paralytic, however, is really not that much better off. Look at what he says in verse 11. He answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. In other words, it's not my fault. The guy who healed me told me to do this. Who was that guy? I don't know. Never got his name. You're kidding me. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him, the man who he'd healed, in the temple. And he said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. So for a second time, Jesus takes the initiative. He sees this man in the temple area and He approaches him. 
He, he speaks of the reality of his physical healing. And then he addresses his spiritual condition. Telling him, don't go on sinning. But he simply doesn't get it. Because he's really just traded one system of false belief for another. Here he is in the temple. Depending on the traditions of man to make him well. While Jesus is the one who can heal him. Making that offer and he walks away. This is the same encounter that took place at the pool. Man didn't have faith. But here this spiritual healing requires faith. But he does not believe. Which is more gut-wrenching? What we see at the pool or what happens right here at the temple? I think it's the latter. It just seems inconceivable to me that here is a man 38 years as an invalid, instantly healed. Jesus is extending his grace and twice, twice the man walks away i think of his response and it may actually help us understand what jesus says in verse 14 when he says behold you've become well do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you what could be worse than living a life as an invalid begging for food hoping in vain for a miracle at least when he was crippled he was aware of his need his need for someone to heal him But now that he's healed, even Jesus has lost his appeal to this man. What's worse than needing a Savior is finding one and then rejecting him. And and the Pharisees were really not all that different, if you think about it. They, They too were looking for salvation in a system. And as a result, they didn't recognize the Savior either. They wanted to kill him. The man wanted to be first in the pool, right? The Pharisees believed that they would be first in the kingdom. And that they were going to get there by depending on their system. The rules of man. They condemned Jesus for not following the rules. But Jesus explains those rules don't apply to God the Father, God the Son, because we are one. Jesus says that both he and his father are working. So as you hear that statement, what are they doing that would be considered work, right? How how are they working? I think if you consider what's just happening, the work that they're doing is the work of redemption. The Jews had this exception clause in their laws of the Sabbath that says you're allowed to do some sort of work if you are doing it to save the life of another. I don't know that that's what Jesus had in mind in here, but that's what he's doing. He's doing the work of redemption to save the life of another. Jesus came to seek and save the lost according to the will of the Father. And there has never been a day since the beginning of time that he has not been at work redeeming the souls of man. The Jews knew what Jesus was saying when he made this response to their question. And they were condemning him for claiming to be equal with God. 
And just in case there was any confusion, Jesus goes on to clarify, to basically say, what you are saying is true. I am. Look at verse 19. Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. In greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to those whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Jesus proclaims equality with God in saying that the work that the Father does, He does as well. The love that the Father has, He shares as well. The power that the Father has, He possesses as well, including the power to bring death where once there was life, both physically and spiritually. And He will demonstrate that through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The miracles of Jesus reveal who He is in His divine nature and His claims to be equal with God. And the people understand. But when you're depending on your own system of salvation, even the miracles of Christ don't change your heart. I think this passage, as we look at it, can be somewhat discouraging. (laughs) Because it seems almost too tragic to be true, doesn't it? I mean, we're listening to this stuff going, you've got to be kidding. This can't be right. God's grace was being poured out on these people and they were literally walking away. Surely that's not something that continues today, does it? No, not today. Actually, every day. Every day. I encounter routinely people who tell a story of of their life that's equally as tragic as the one in our passage today. They may not have a physical disability, but their life is a spiritual mess. And and even though Jesus is offering to make them whole, even though they have undeniable evidences of His grace, they continue to seek healing in the futility of their own solutions. And this is not isolated to those that are outside the church. It affects you and I as well. Because we can know that truth, but the truth doesn't set us free if we're not willing to follow and obey that truth. There are people in the church, in this church, just like me and you, who need healing. I don't know about you, but there, there are things in my life that I still depend on my own system. And God comes to those places and He says, do you want to be healed? I think that's true for every single one of us. 
And so what I want us to do is to think about our passage in that context and, and, and consider some of the questions that Jesus may ask of us. First, the thing that I think is most significant that we should get our arms around is this. There is no condition that is more desperate in life than when we no longer see our need for a Savior. There is no condition that is more desperate in life than when we no longer see our need for a Savior. That's a sickness. And Jesus asks us the question, do you want to be healed? And here's the solution to that sickness. Be humble. Be humble. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding for for god opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble therefore seek first his kingdom and and his righteousness and then depend on god to to add those things that you need in life c.s lewis puts it this way he says god cannot bless us unless he has us when we try to keep within us an area that is our own we try to keep an area of death therefore in love he claims all there is no bargaining with god so when you look for answers trust wholly on the truth of god's word trust completely on the promises of god's heart just think about that paralytic man in our our passage this morning and the the false hope that he had and what what i see is a legendary cure and even though he was healed Physically, he still depended on a a false hope of a system to save him. I want you to know that there's nothing magical for any of us when we come to church on Sunday. There's nothing magical that happens by walking in those doors and sitting where you're sitting right now. The miracle we need most is found in humility when we come to the feet of our Savior. And like the royal official, we take him at his word. We trust in his promises. Like John the Baptist, we believe that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like Nicodemus, we believe that whoever trusts in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And it's more than just that moment of faith because we realize that there's a walk of faith. A daily dependence on Jesus Christ to meet our deepest needs. Because, as he said, apart from him, we can do nothing. Following that that path of obedience is the road to freedom. It is how we are healed. By the work of the Spirit transforming our life. The other thing that I want us to recognize in our passage is the the ones that were most wrong were the ones that were convinced they were most right. That could be a sickness. The the question is, do you want to be healed? And and here's the solution. Be teachable. Be teachable. Matthew 11, 28 says, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. It says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in spirit. Christians are lifetime learners. In fact, the more you know, the more you realize how much there is to learn, right? It's like digging deep into a treasure and never getting to the bottom of it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. What a blessing 
that we serve a God that is incomprehensible to the minds of men. And yet the simplicity of salvation can be understood even as a child. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians and says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the lowly things of the world to shame the exalted, so that no one has any room to boast. Jesus Christ, he says, has revealed to us the wisdom of God. And so if you want to boast in anything, boast in Jesus Christ. When we talked about the marriage, when we went through a marriage series a few weeks ago, one of the things that I encouraged us to consider was that we really experience the love that God has designed us for in a marriage relationship as we become a student of our spouse's heart. right? To, to know their heart, to know how to love them well. I think that applies to, to parents and kids as well. If we want to uh, cu- cultivate love in our relationship with our kids, we've got to be a student of their hearts, knowing how to love them well. I believe the same is true in our relationship with God. If we want to experience that love, be a student of God's heart. And there is no better picture of God's heart than what you see lived out in the life of Christ. So be a student of God's heart, learning to follow the example of Christ's life. Be humble and trust in God's way. Be teachable and and trust in God's heart. Finally, be thankful because you live in the midst of God's grace. You see, too often, and, and I'm just as guilty as anybody, we end up being paralyzed by life's circumstances, because we lose the ability to recognize God's grace that surrounds us, that's right there in front of us. It's always there. But you have to see it sometimes, perhaps most times, through eyes of faith. Somebody who does that well is my friend, my sister-in-law, Dawn. Don tells a story of uh, her dad recently going through a series of of tests. His health has been failing. And those of you who have aging parents, you know how difficult that can be as you kind of become the parents, taking care of your parents in a difficult situation. They were at the hospital, pretty much spent the entire day there. He has a lot of uh, health issues and he was losing his memory and and trying to figure out what was going on so they they were going from doctor to doctor mris blood tests cognitive tests all these things that were happening on this particular day and it was a difficult day And, and it could have been really frustrating as they continued to get bad news but when you look through the eyes of faith you see something different Don shared this experience in an email that she sent us where she talks about how she witnessed the evidence of God's grace. She talked about how her dad really didn't question all the things that they were doing and that she led him through the hospital system, but she followed him faithfully to each of those places. She said, he trusted me, never shaken or worried, always at my side. She went on to talk about this test that he had to take, a cognitive test, which he couldn't. And in the midst of it, on a space that had no relationship to this whatsoever, he writes, I love you, Dawn.
Don reflected on that and said, what a great reminder of how we should relate to our Heavenly Father, walking close beside Him, knowing He will care for us because He loves us. I believe some of the strongest testimonies of faith are those that give evidence of God's grace in the midst of some of the most difficult circumstances. I think of people like Tony Ann Connatani, who lived most of her life confined in a wheelchair until the day she died. I think about Lisa Wright, who lives in a nursing home. I told her I was going to talk about her this morning, by the way. But she's in a nursing home, and I promise you she would rather be right here with you today. I showed up to her room this week, weekend, and uh, my mistake, I was there too early. I didn't realize that she slept till 11. <clears throat> but anyway, <laughs> I woke her up. But I'm telling you, from the moment she woke up, there was a brightness and joy about her life that was immediately visible. In the midst of all those circumstances... She demonstrated a love and grace of God in her life that I admire deeply. These are people who are not paralyzed by their circumstances because they're thankful for the blessings of God's grace that surrounds them every day. And that's true for all of us, by the way. We are all surrounded by the gift of God's grace every single day. So be thankful, be teachable, be humble, seek to know Jesus, the the healer of your soul, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, who comes to us in those places where we depend on ourselves and he asks us, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Then trust in him. Let's pray. Uh, Thanks for the beauty of your love seen so clearly in your word. I just can't imagine how we could or anyone could read this and not see the amazing links with which you go to demonstrate your love for us, to invite us to a place of healing, to follow you in obedience in a path that leads to freedom. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your mercy, how you've approached us like you have approached that man, asking us that very same question. And so, Father, may we understand that we encounter grace in those moments and may we trust in you, take you at your word, believe, in fact, that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that we put our faith and trust in you, Father, thank you so much for your gift of love and the time that we've been able to examine it together this morning. May we live it now in worship throughout this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.